Okay, so uh, we're here for Millennial Panic Poems. Um, this is a panel for Newcastle Writers' Festival. And uh, we're here with Claire Albrecht and uh, Hera Lindsay Bird to discuss the pitfalls and occasional positives of anxiety in the poetic process. Uh, so Hera Lindsay Bird is an award-winning Wellington poet and fiction writer and Claire Albrecht is writing her PhD in poetry at the University of Newcastle. And I'm Bastian fox Phelan. I'm the host. Uh, I'm a memoir writer from Newcastle. Uh, so welcome, Claire and Hera. Hi. How's it going? <laughs> yeah, not too bad. Not great. I mean, um, it would have been nice to be looking forward to this weekend with the kind of physical writers festival and everything that was happening with that. So it's pretty, um, pretty sad to not have that happen, but it's great that we can sort of meet together online and still do something. Yeah. yeah I feel like I should be wearing my togs or something like in full Newcastle outfit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If only, um, I saw today that like all the beaches have been closed in Newcastle from today. So Newcastle Writers Festival has this whole tradition of everyone going to the bars and to the beach and yeah, it's just like the opposite right now. Mm. So it's all right. We're all inside in our little studies. Yeah. yeah. Everyone has to take a big bath at once or something. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. <laughs> yeah, closing party for the online festival. Mm. Um, so what a time to be talking about millennial panic, right? <laughs> yeah. I feel like everyone's got it at the moment. We don't have a claim over it anymore. Okay. <laughs> if we ever did. <laughs> I feel like that's funny because it feels like there's like a broader sense of panic, but also like I've just been inside for so long now, like sort of not talking to anyone but my partner. But I, like, I feel like my heart is sort of slowed down, like I'm sort of like one of those lizards or something that's kind of in winter hibernation or something, like those frogs that just kind of get encased in ice. And so even though like there's an air of panic at large, it doesn't really feel like a, any physical manifestation, eh? I feel yeah. quite sluggish and, and dumb and like I'm losing my ability to form sentences. <laughs> yeah, I, it definitely feels really different to... Um, the anxiety that I normally have. I actually feel a lot calmer at the moment. I don't know if it's because I feel like I've like leveled out with the rest of the world because everyone's feeling anxious that, you know, now my anxiety is just part of the great sea um, or whether, I don't know, it's something more, um, you know, latent. Like I feel like I can have control over certain things now. Like I can make sure I wash my hands and I can control where I get my grocery from and get everything delivered. Like, you know, maybe um, something about it is kind of helping my anxiety, which is bizarre to think about. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, I've been having a few conversations with friends um, with anxiety or, you know, um, OCD or other things like that and just about how like um it's almost like everybody understands what it's like to be inside your head now <laughs> we're having this really shared experience <laughs> I guess but I don't know I'm I'm not sure about you Hera but I'm totally an introvert so I spend a lot of time at home anyway and I 
I definitely miss my friends and I miss being able to go out and just exist in the world a bit more openly. But um, I'm pretty used to this state of life. And so I feel like there are lots of people who are feeling it a lot worse because they don't really like being at home. They don't like being able to see people and like physically hold people. And so that anxiety is a bit probably worse for them because it's something new that they don't sort of know how to deal with and haven't had to deal with before. Whereas I'm sort of doing my same, get on the couch, just hang out for several hours and feel really good about it vibe. Yeah, this is actually supposed to be, I think on the 1st of April, I'm supposed to be starting a writing residency. So it's kind of like I would have been doing exactly the same thing anyway. Now I don't have the building. I've just got my own. (laughs) And the rest of the world is sort of, you know, on the same class. But yeah. Where was the residency supposed to be? Um, it was a it was a four month one for the Frank Sargeson Centre, which is um, up in Albert Park in Auckland, and it was just kind of a, for a fiction writing one. But um, mm. yeah, maybe I'll be able to spend a couple of months there or no months at all, depending on how things sort of look in the next four weeks. Yeah, I'm supposed to go to the states in September for a three month writing residency, oh, which. No. It's, you know, amazing, but that kind of time frame, look, it's six months from now, and theoretically we might be able to be back to some sort of normalcy then and be able to fly internationally and go and do these kinds of writing residencies that I've not really done one before. And, um, yeah, we'll kind of be another three months of the same, but somewhere else. Mm. But, yeah, you know, I'm hoping we can still do that. It's just... I think so many writers are feeling the loss of opportunities like residencies and conferences. I was supposed to go to a conference in Cairns in June, a little tropical holiday. But yeah, that's that's going online as well now. So yeah, it's just all these little losses that are accumulating as well that I think writers in particular are feeling. Like this festival. Yeah, for sure. Like um uh especially for like a regional writers festival um as a regional writer you don't have the same kinds of um networks that you would have in in major cities so uh having a whole bunch of writers come to your city to hang out for a weekend is like really encouraging and um yeah it's a shame that we can't all be there in person but i guess it's still you know it's for the best obviously (laughs) um it's great that we can still find ways to connect online Absolutely. Mm. So um, why don't we talk a little bit about, I mean, I guess we were initially going to talk a bit about who are millennials. Um, Mm. Claire? (laughs) Yeah, well, there's, um, it's like 25 to 40 or something, isn't it? Now is what the millennial age range is. Is that right? It seems (laughs) vaguely right. But yeah, I guess... um, the reason I sort of mentioned to Bastian is that, that we should mention those because um, Writers Festival audiences tend to be dominated by a certain demographic that might not know what age millennials are and might sort of lump younger people all together under the same um, banner. So I think it is important to note that millennials are sort of in this period of life that we're supposed to kind of be established and know what we're doing and um, 
I don't know, be in some sort of control of our lives. And I think a lot of us feel like we aren't. And that contributes <laughs> to some general anxiety. Uh, I know, at least, yeah, I feel that way a lot of the time. And a lot of the people that I know um, experience that as well. But yeah, what would you say like being a millennial is in terms of anxiety here? And, and in terms of anxiety? Uh, you think millennials are more anxious? Maybe. I'm sure um, being able to constantly refresh the news every, like, three seconds probably doesn't sort of help with yeah. um, that kind of thing. But then I was kind of, I don't know, I was looking through, I was trying to pull out some books from my shelves of people who I'd kind of consider, like, um, millennial poets or poets who sort of fit into that category, and I couldn't really remember what the age bracket was, but then I was sort of thinking... I don't know, to me, like, one of the most millennial-sounding poets of all time is, like, Frank O'Hara, who's, you know, like seven, seven generations. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> no yeah, yeah. Seven generation New York school. But similar sort of concerns and, and delivery. It's just the tech is a bit different. Yeah, I, I mean, I can definitely sort of read a millennial aesthetic in a lot of poets that aren't the millennial age range. Um, but I sort of feel like there's something about millennial poetry, especially at the moment, that is sort of um, trying to tap into current ideas, whether they're sort of political or social, but doing it in sort of this memified way, like, like, you know how people on social media, especially millennials and also sort of the younger generations as well, tend to make light of mental health and sort of um, make memes about it and joke about it. I think we're sort of doing that in our poems as well. I, I tend to see a lot of that sort of wry humour around mental health in a lot of poetry of people sort of in that age range. I, like That's what I've noticed anyway. It might just be that they're the kind of poets that I like to read. <laughs> So I'm not sure. Um, I, one of the things that I love the most, or I think is the most interesting, is that kind of part of that millennial stuff sort of gets um, tied up with a kind of delivery format of poetry. You know, like I, I get called an Insta poet, um, and I'm just like like never posting a single poem on my Instagram ever. You know, like that's the kind of um, thing that like follows me around, and I think it's just because of the, you know, it's just like a way to suggest that. Um, it's mm. sort of influenced by internet culture in some way or something. But um, I love, like, one of my favourite things about the sort of, the kind of writing that's coming up now is sort of how um, people's um, grammar and stuff, the internet has changed grammar, and that's, like, one of the things I find really exciting. Like, you can kind of, there are so many sort of subtleties and um, nuances to, like, joke-making on Twitter that are, like, dependent on capitals or full stops or, like, exclamation marks and things like that, and all of these sort of really subtle ways to indicate sarcasm and things like that, and, and um, to me, that's, like, one of my favourite parts, because you can actually express, it's like this whole kind of um, code where you can kind of express your feelings in a much more um, transparent way. Mm. I don't know whether... I don't know whether people who are sort of 
everyone would sort of understand all of those codes. I think most people are fairly internet literate now. I think maybe my grandma would read something and not be like, she'd be like, oh, why is it the second letter like it's capital? <laughs> but um, yeah, I think um, the delivery is like a, I don't know, I feel like there's a, a greater freedom to kind of express sentiment through like punctuation and grammar now as well, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, yeah, I also think, like you were saying, um, some more openness to sort of expressivity. I, I think I was thinking about whether maybe poets at the moment are more, um, not confessional, but maybe a bit more open about their lives and their feelings and sort of the more mundane aspects of that rather than sort of, you know, confessing all this um, deep emotional turmoil. It's more sort of having fun with the little things and sort of playing with what a sort of contemporary existence might be, even though it might not be that exciting. So I guess poems around domesticity and I don't know, those kind of like smaller relationships with people are things that I see coming out more often. Um, and I guess how that plays into anxiety is that it makes me, when I write that kind of more um, sort of open poetry about how sort of sometimes like really boring my life can be, it takes some of the pressure off, you know, having to be a poet and to make everything interesting and um, I don't know, meaningful, or it's like everything is anyway. You know, like life is just like this whole pool of meaning. So, yeah, I don't know. I guess that's um, another aspect of, I guess, what I would consider millennial poetry. Do you think it's related to um, that people share more of their daily lives on social media these days? Probably. Yeah. I think poetry follows the trends of social media because it's a social form of writing or it can be I guess it doesn't always have to be but it seems to be at the moment it's becoming more social and shared like you said her insta poetry is just insanely massive these days which I guess yeah speaks to the social element of poetry and if you can write things that are under 10 lines long <laughs> yeah I started writing um a twitter page called Creek Sweets that was short poems written from each character of Dawson's Creek. <laughs> and, yeah, sort of um, the fun of having to fit it in to those lines and character limits is actually quite a lovely thing to do. Plus it meant I just got to sit and watch Dawson's Creek for a long time, which is my jam. <laughs> um, maybe we should talk a little bit about um yeah about anxiety and how that could help or hinder the process of, of writing poetry mm -hmm. I, I feel like um i'm not as a person i'm not a particularly anxious person but i just asked my partner for i was like do you think that like um you know you would say i was an anxious person and um he said no but maybe my poems are and i feel like that's that's mm -hmm. probably like a true thing and I read I read some in the back and I was like oh yeah no wonder no wonder they put me on this panel like, <laughs> but um it's yeah it's a funny thing because I think a lot of it has to do with for me like the, the 
my favorite kind of poems are or like I wouldn't write a poem um, without having sort of like a, a, a question or like a or something something at the heart of it you know like something unsolved that and I guess that you can kind of I don't know it's easy to make kind of a quite anxious poem because you can kind of and note that repetition like trying to get to that idea you've kind of got these like thought cycles and like to me that's what a lot of the poetry is it's like cycles of thought that kind of moving yeah. back around like one idea so I can see why maybe like an anxious kind of poetry has is kind of more prominent now because um I think it's like apart from being like a diagnosis that seems like more and more people have it's also just like it suits poetry quite well I think it's a format yeah yeah um I sort of only really realized I was writing anxious poetry um after my honours, so my first sort of chapbook, which was more um, sort of eco-poems, but they were eco-poems that were sort of around my eco-anxiety and general fears and, um, yeah, just ongoing watching the world and being um, scared of what's happening. So once, once I got sort of past that realization, I kind of had a closer look at what I was doing with poetry and why anxiety was maybe playing a part in that. And um, yeah, I don't know, I guess one thing that I have noticed about anxiety and about other people, especially writers who are writing about anxiety have said that it's a sort of like a heightening of the senses. So you kind of, um, it's like a superpower almost <laughs> where you kind of, rather than having your normal view of the world, when you get sort of into heightened states of anxiety, your perception is increased to a point where it's extremely uncomfortable mentally. But what that can do as an artist is sort of pull your attention to things that you otherwise wouldn't have noticed and that you can put into poems that wouldn't have happened if you hadn't had sort of that heightened mode of attention or that anxiety. So, trying to play with that is really difficult because um, it requires trying to know when you're anxious and kind of harness that where all you really want to do is sort of um, have a bath. So <laughs> <laughs> have a, a collective bath with <laughs> a writer's festival. <laughs> um, <laughs> Wait, we were talking about that before we started recording. Yeah, yeah I'll totally <laughs> Um, yeah, I guess the positive is that, that um, sensory aspect where I, I like the fact that I can sort of be really attuned to what's going on around me and really aware of it to the point where it doesn't sort of overwhelm me. Um, I have just uh, a little quote from a New York Times article from 2003 and the writer is Lauren Slater, and she says, where depression is precisely a problem of meaninglessness, anxiety, one might say, is a problem of excess meaning, which I found really interesting. Um, but sort of there's too much, and it's like an overflowing of ideas that can either be really unsettling um, and sort of make it impossible to write anything, or sort of before it gets to that stage, it could be a really useful sort of pool of ideas if you can sort of manage to put them down somewhere. I don't know. 
do you ever have those kinds of rushes of kind of attention to details? Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think I'm always interested in particularly like poems. I really have a lot of the physical world in them. I've always, you know, I think it's why I like the New York School so much because I've got like, you know, it's like one of those great I spy puzzles from the 80s and like sort of finding all of the hidden objects in there. Um, I don't know whether that's sort of, I probably wouldn't put that down to any increased like powers of perception, rather it's kind of like a, you know, kind of tacky, cluttered grandmother's living room sort of aesthetic, which I'm, I'm kind of drawn to. But yeah, I mean, I think it's hard now to write sort of, I try and think of like what the opposite of an anxious poem would be, or, you know, or you think about those like beautiful old kind of, um, you know, like Basho complaining about his back and talking about riding a horse around and stuff like that. Mm. Um, and I don't know, even though I love that kind of poetry, I don't know how how to write a thing like that now in an in a honest way or like how, yeah, I don't know. Maybe in, maybe in 30 years when civilization has collapsed and we're all kind of living in our abandoned factory warehouses, there'll be like a new wave of like millennial serenity poems or something. <laughs> yeah. I feel like some of my poems are those kinds of, um, you know, the stuff on the outside, like everything else that's going around mundane world poems. Um, because I feel like if you don't have some of those, the poems with the anxiety that you can notice more so become sort of overwhelming and you just sort of don't want to read them anymore. It's just a bit depressing. So yeah, I, I at least try to have some, um, balance in what I do, especially like in a book. So I'm putting a book together at the moment and I don't want it to all just feel super anxious. Like I certainly want that to be there. I kind of want people to feel anxious when they're reading it. But I'm not going to do that to someone for a whole book. Like that's extremely mean. <laughs> so you get it. Like I'm trying to have moments where it like goes into sort of, um, you know, everything else, everything else that's not anxiety, I guess, whatever that is. So much easier to do it in a movie, eh? Because you can just sort of have like a well shot thing of um, a guy like going through his newspapers or whatever. And as long as he put like an ominous violin solo underneath, like you know he's going to kill someone. Yeah. <laughs> can't really, can't really function like that in poetry, unfortunately. I'd love to put like a low droning noise underneath just to like, oh, yes, you know, give the give the poem like a hang sometimes. <laughs> yes, that would be nice. Well, I mean, I am trying to include some photography in the book as I guess part of part of that you know taking advantage of more mediums to I don't know I guess it makes it easier I sort of try and go into this idea of um, representation anxiety in some of the work I'm doing where you sort of get quite anxious about the fact that you have to get this thing across, like you have to get the meaning across, but what if the poem doesn't quite do it? What if you need a picture to help or, you know, a, a movie shot in between poem to poem so people can follow what you, what your brain is doing. And yeah, I guess that's why I'm including some photography in there to try and not transition, but direct, I suppose, direct people's um, reading throughout the book. 
which I, I know I really shouldn't have to do, but I guess it comes down to sort of an anxiety that like, what if they, what if they don't get it? Um, which it's poetry. No one ever gets everything. <laughs> so, yeah. Hmm. Um, so I guess like there's the kind of personal experience of, of anxiety that can feed into millennial bank bonds and I guess there's also like the um the poem itself having a kind of anxious voice like reflecting um I guess like the yeah maybe the voice of society at the moment you know like uh, and I guess it's kind of interesting now because it's I feel like it's definitely shifted as as everything will with um coronavirus because there's this kind of like pre and you know we're in the middle of it and um you know hopefully we'll be on the other side of it at some point too but um yeah how do you think that the um yeah how can poetry speak to that kind of anxiety do you want to talk to that at all hmm. do you want to go here or how how we can poetry Sorry, can you rephrase the question? <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> um, I guess I'm just like, I'm just wondering about, I mean, like Claire, you mentioned before um, eco-poetry and trying to create, if I understood correctly, trying to create a, a poem that has anxiety in it because you want people to be taking the climate crisis more seriously and you want people to actually feel anxious about it because anxiety might motivate people to take action um but then we we also have this like really like pressing extremely anxiety inducing um pandemic and i'm just wondering about yeah how do you think poetry can can speak to this experience that everybody's going through mm. it's funny because i you know we're kind of at this weird moment in time now where it feels like either things could kind of totally return to the status quo or there could be like real sort of um transformative change and we're just kind of sitting here like right at the beginning of this and i think everyone's kind of i don't know not not that we haven't you know everyone hasn't been sort of concerned about the apocalypse for like years and years now but it really feels like this is like the moment for um yeah productive and radical and transformational change and i don't really i've never known how you have a a poetry that kind of um speaks to that because i guess most of the stuff i've always written has sort of been like personal poetry like without sort of a broader you know, like a political focus in, um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, 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 it's, it's hard, it's a hard balance to strike because you want to, like, I appreciate what you're saying about like maybe anxiety about the future could be like a um, compelling factor to get people to sort of change their behavior. But I think it's also, um, you know, I worry writing, poems that kind of feed into that, that there's sort of a like a debilitating aspect of it as well and like and maybe it's not the you know the right kind of um poem that we need for this moment although i mean who quite knows what that is i don't know 
but you know, I wonder if sometimes I look at the poems of mine that are like the most worried and I'm like, was this helpful? Did it say anything relevant? You know, did it, did it make anyone, <laughs> um, I don't know, did it have any sort of net positive result? Oh, I don't know why I'm talking like that. <laughs> I think I've been watching too many like news briefings and stuff like that. <laughs> because that poetry is basically useless and you know anyone expecting it to cure a virus is deranged. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, I guess yeah, what what is what is the kind of poetry that we need at the moment is yeah, I think a really important question. But what I guess what might a poem be doing or one that looks at anxieties. I guess my poetry sort of is is in that in between where it's quite personal. It's about me, but me in the context of the world and like the anxiety that the world brings to me in particular, you know, the bushfires. I wrote a number of poems during that. Um, and uh, sort of, just general fuckwit politicians just making me really pissed off all the time, features permanently also. Um, and I don't know, I don't, I don't really imagine that they're going to change the world or anything, but I do like to imagine that people can read them and feel um, that they're sharing in those emotions or that um, Sometimes it can be very isolating to feel anxious about the world and our place in it and to remember that so, so, so many other people are feeling the same way to me is often quite soothing. And so when I read poems that sort of tap me into another person's personal response to the world, I feel like I've been led into something that um, I can share. And I think that's powerful. Like it might not, it might not do anything to change the circumstances we find ourselves in, but it might make living through them a little easier. Does that make sense? Yeah, completely. Yeah. And I, I think like, um, just sharing, like writing about your personal experience, whenever you do it, you're like, who's really going to care about this, you know, but then people always, always connect to it and it is meaningful to people. And, um, yeah, I don't know. I think it's really, I think it's really a uh, valid thing to just be like, this is my personal experience and this is how I'm coping, <laughs> whether it's good or bad or, you know, you don't exactly have to judge it any particular way. But um, mm. it's such a strange thing right now that like uh, we're going through this collective experience of isolation. It's like the world has never previously been doing something kind of so similar at the same time. <laughs> And yet we're all so separate. <laughs> um, yeah, anyway, so, um, yeah. Um, maybe it's time for us to hear some of your poetry. Um, so who would like to read first? <laughs> well, I can just um, look at one that I have that sort of speaks to what we were just saying. Yep. Um, it, one of, there's two poems that I wrote during the bushfires that I've got here. Um, uh, I'll read the shorter one that makes me less sad to start with and we can do both if it comes to that. Um, so this is called Locket in Eddie. 
I've been thinking of what to do when no one will pay me to write poetry anymore. That's now, by the way. <laughs> a locksmith. A van drives by the Mayfield Bowling Club and beckons with its bolts, latches and cylinders. I inhale as the old bloke behind moans of greenies. I want to show him a picture of the storm a fire makes all its own, electric, and tell him of the town in Pennsylvania where a coal blaze has burned for 50 years and the trouble I've been having breathing, anxiety or bushfire smoke, hard to say. It's a tightness of the chest, just like the air's bearing down, saying, hey, motherfuckers, do you want me here or not? And yes, you know I do, and I want the earth unburnt and oceans cold and colourful like oil on water, like your eyes when they tell me I am going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that one is pretty self-explanatory. Um, it just was trying to speak to the physical anxiety I was feeling at the time, which was huge. Just, it's actually <laughs> amazing to think back on it now because I feel that um, heaviness has lifted from when everything was on fire here just for months and we couldn't breathe because, you know, the smoke was so toxic and it, yeah, it took a really physical and mental toll on me um, and trying to express that to see if it helped was um, sort of one of the aims of writing these poems. And the other one was, yeah, just trying to link together these sort of refrains that you were saying, Hera, like poetry has these things that kind of come around and trying to link up sort of the every day of me sort of sitting around and wondering what to do with myself with the knowledge that all of this is going on around me and I can't really do anything about it. Uh, and I just sort of want someone to be like, it's, it's probably going to be okay. It might not, but I'll tell you that it is anyway. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Um, would you like to read another poem? Um, okay. Uh, yes. On the same topic or different? Um, maybe I'll read this one. This is a new one. Um, and it's less about uh, bushfires and more about general stuff. Um, it's called Some Things Float, Some Don't. There's more debris than we think suspended in our seas like jellies or the blue bottle I saw drifting on the surface, the saliva on your tongue when you tell me of tentacles 30 feet long. One night, drunk, I couldn't climb onto the bed and fell, crashed through the mirror that leant like a tree against the wall and so a sprawling corpse on the floor looked at spiderwebs above. Then you hauled me up by my arms, picked pieces of kaleidoscope out of my back and pickled ass as I lay across you laughing, wondering how many versions of me you could see in them. Flashing about in those sharp tactile memories that splashed refractions out and of me, fragments taken from the frame. And it wasn't until the next day that I felt splintered, dry and itching. There was nowhere to look for myself and I got lost in what was left like age 13, when I would root around in the still warm discarded trousers of my father for loose change, tossing his tissues aside, those human bits and pieces. I was hungry for gold and for the smell of it. Often it's hard to look him in the eye. 
we've taken a lot from each other, turning out empty pockets with a grimace. These days you shave my legs in the bath, soak me up as though I'm an invalid and conjure a swirl, a storm, sometimes blood. And when we're done, you say, I'm smooth like a dolphin. You love me like this. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, and that sort of came from trying to write a poem about mirrors. Mm, cool. It's my strongest mirror memory. <laughs> <laughs> mirrors. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, mirrors. Like mirrors is Pardon? Yeah. The idea of um, the mirror is a self, like an agent of self-image and the fragmentation that could happen when like the mirror breaks and there's all these little pieces of you in it still. And like, where do they go? I guess was sort of the idea behind that. And I'm sort of feeling a bit of that now looking back at myself, like in a screen, mm. feeling that sort of crisis of identity of where I am. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we'll have to get used to seeing ourselves like this. <laughs> Yeah, thinking of disabling my webcam, just telling people it's broken. <laughs> <laughs> <Twice>. <laughs> Thank you so much, Claire. Um, maybe um, we can hear some poetry from Hera now. Yeah, I was, I'm not really sure what to raise, but um, I feel like my most anxious poems are like kind of my worst poems, so probably the ones that are most thematically appropriate. <laughs> I'm kind of like a bit past their use by day now, but I've got a short one called Jealousy. Jealousy. Anytime someone I'm dating ever mentions someone they used to love in a semi-nostalgic or non-cynical way, I immediately want to drive my car headfirst into a swamp full of battery acid, ruining Christmas for everyone. It's so unreasonable to be afraid of so many sad and distant women who have escaped into the future, only occasionally looking back through their naturally thick eyelashes. When I think about the possibility the person I'm currently with has ever been romantically interested in another person ever, I feel a great self-antagonism for being the kind of woman who came afterwards, like a bad sequel with a higher budget. Oh, I feel sorry for the people I love or mirror as I'm taking them because I don't think I'm good enough. I think it's okay to admit the people you love are better than you. I wouldn't date anyone who wasn't. Imagine dating someone worse than yourself on purpose. That's the kind of fucked up thing only everyone I've ever loved would do. Yeah, as you can see, no, no sort of like broader anxiety beyond my own personal problems. But <laughs> like that's one of the broadest anxieties because we all have it. <laughs> <laughs> the reptile anxiety, yeah, it's like lizard brain. <laughs> so good, thank you. Um, would you like to read us another poem? I'm kind of curious about what you said earlier about how your poetry has a kind of anxiety like in the voice, even if it's not produced from the personal experience of, of anxiety. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I've got, I mean, maybe I'm just not very self-aware. That's also a possibility, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've got another one, um, which is kind of, I guess, it's about, it's written about wild geese by Mary Oliver, um, which is, I guess, so I guess it's kind of like quite a, you could call it like a millennial anxiety response to that, because if you know the original poem, like it's a beautiful poem, it's sort of Mary Oliver and her very kind of 
you know, prophetic kind of new age way, telling everyone to be like the geese and, you know, travel across the desert by moonlight and forgive yourself. Um, so this is kind of like a response poem to that. Um, so it's called Wild Geese by Mary Oliver by Hera Lindsay Bird. You do not have to be good, as everything you deserve from taking relation to advice from a flock of migratory birds. Even in poetry, I forgive you nothing. Not even your new empire of grief. Woof. <laughs> Take off your dress and stand in the river, your body a ghost unknown from someone else's past. Tell me about your despair, yours, and I will tell you mine. Meanwhile, in a hospital gown. Meanwhile, in a long, dead language. Meanwhile, every morning, the stars and tatters on the snow. Meanwhile, the library of Alexandria burning in alphabetical order. Meanwhile, an asterisk flowing across the screen like tumbleweeds. Meanwhile, every day for the rest of our lives, I return here to ask you how to forgive someone who was never mine to forgive. You do not have to be good. Being good isn't even the point anymore. I just don't think it's real to think of geese and feel so beautiful about yourself and so far away. Yesterday, my girlfriend and I borrowed a car and drove down through the valley where my mother almost starved herself to death 30 years ago. A huge silver wind blowing in from the sea. What do I care if there's no justice in this world? Life is hard and pain is hard. And it's hard for me to write plainly about the night my girlfriend told me she still loved you and call it art. It did not feel like art. It did not feel like a hundred miles from the desert repenting, but it hurt me. It still hurts me. Even now, the shadow of new leaves turned on the carpet. Oh Mary, how will we survive ourselves and will this life ever answer? I don't know. Panic and awe are the same to me. I love life and I hate death. So when you try to describe to me what it feels like to want to die, I can only look at you like you are a slow burning planet and I am pouring water through a telescope. You do not have to be good. You do not have to be anything. This is not an anthem for the world. This life is a hard life and it crushes people, but it's also weird and full of heat. Crocodiles asleep in their red tent of hunger. Puzzle pieces blowing up the street on the road outside the house we sold all our things and moved south for. It was winter and we were so in love, sitting on the floor of her grandmother's flat, watching the news roll in about a woman who had been chained for seven years in someone's basement and had just got free. The next morning we packed all our things and headed south as if it were that easy, as if there were anywhere to arrive we could ever return from. You noticed I even mentioned panic in that poem and I didn't know when I wrote it. <laughs> How appropriate. <laughs> that was beautiful, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, it's actually kind of spooky once you start thinking about anxiety, how often you see it come up in poems or panic or sort of all of those feelings. Mm. Um, and it becomes, uh, I don't know. Um, it, <sighs> I try not, you know, the thing where you read something in high school and you read it so often and you have to look at it in such a certain way that you don't love it anymore. Mm. I'm trying to avoid having poetry ruined for me by reading anxiety into everything. So I feel like <laughs> that will destroy poetry for me forever. But it is still nice to um, just to sort of know that it's there. Like it's kind of a little friend that I, I find hiding mm in people's work and my own work and yeah it was nice to have it sort of cruising in and out of that poem I feel like 
I often, I think a lot of people do, but I often read like thematically or based on a, you know, like at the moment I'm not reading anything, you know, serious. I'm reading only like old Woodhouse books and Agatha Christie books. And I feel like, you know, I've got poem, poetry books that I only ever pick up when I'm in the middle of a terrible breakup or something. So I feel like it's good to have those sort of different, you know, categories that you can kind of, you know, come back to when you need them. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think maybe I'm reading, well, I'm certainly reading more anxious poetry because I'm having to write about it for my PhD. Um, so it's kind of a necessity. But it is nice to sort of read outside of that. And yet, even sort of the lighter work that I'll read, um, you, you can see it coming out or perhaps my reactions to it and my anxiety is coming out. And I guess it just reinforces to me that anxiety is this thing that just sort of exists in the world everywhere. Um, and we sort of can't escape it, which is why it's important to write about it or talk about it. And some people might not feel it as much as others um, or might sort of not notice that it's there. But when you do, it sort of illuminates the world in a different way, which I think is something that is sort of like one of the positives of it. It's just a different, it can be a different way of looking at things. It can be extremely debilitating, but it can also be kind of beautiful. I think like anxiety is something that really requires transformation as well, because like, it's basically like a loop that you get stuck in and you have to do something to get out of it. So you have to transform it some way and mm. like, you know, physical activity can be one way to transform it or like discharge it. But um, so can creative work and to either represent what it feels like or just to make something in, in response to that desire to escape that loop, I guess. So like, yeah, I see like anxiety can manifest in, in like, a lot of really funny shit as well, you know? <laughs> and like, I was reading your um, poem, Hera, about um, friends and Monica earlier. <laughs> and it was making me laugh so much. And I also really loved your line about how you wanted to wash your hands with um, sanitizer when you thought <laughs> about Monica. Nostradamus. <laughs> I feel like Nostradamus. Yeah, I, I guess that's funny reading that poem as well, because then you you know you watch it back and you're just like oh yeah actually Monica is just like has crazy anxiety like she's <laughs> that, that's why she's like yeah so maybe I should write an apology poem I feel like <laughs> <laughs> that would be interesting it's so weird like when I was writing the Dawson's Creek poems to go back to it you know, however many years later. And yeah, I may have watched the whole series through a couple of times between when it aired and now. But um, I guess more so than anxiety, like the kind of depression of those characters and their crushing like weight of the world on them and how all of them just had this bad stuff happening to them all the time. Like that was kind of the trademark of the show is that they were just put in these awful situations and had to sort of talk their way out of it. Um, made for just these crushingly depressing poems. <laughs> So it's just like you think you think that popular culture is um, a distraction from things like anxiety and depression, but they're a part of it as well. And they, um, I think they do a lot more work in talking about it than we give them credit for. I'm watching Peep Show at the moment, which is the best anxious comedy of all time. You know, it's like the kind of thing that I show my dad, and he could only watch one episode of it. He's like, I can never watch that again. <laughs> yeah. Sense. 
it's anxiety inducing for me as well. Like, um, uh, I can't remember the name of the other show, but yeah, shows that, yeah, really put you in like the space of the viewer and it's really uncomfortable. I find particularly like nerve wracking to watch even the office where you put in that sort of perspective where you're a part of everything going on makes me feel really like, um, I don't know, like I'm somehow, uh, seen by them and they're judging me as like part of this whole, um, situation, but yeah, maybe that's why I go to very, 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 90s kind of easy shows like Dawson's Creek to feel like I don't exist and my entire life is on the creek instead of, <laughs> instead of in my lounge room. I don't know. Yeah, we'll all be watching I Love Lucy in two months. In the front mm. <laughs> I, I have to confess I'm watching Glee. I don't know why or how, <laughs> but it's, it's real. <laughs> it's just constant musicals in the house. I don't know. I don't know what has happened, but yeah, it's just getting to that dire point where we're um, plumbing the depths of media, trying to get whatever we can out of it. <laughs> it's definitely a distraction for anxiety. I just don't like everything disappears into into song. Not a lot of anxious musicals. Anxious musicals. Yeah, that, that would be a lot. <laughs> Maybe that'll be on the next Writers' Festival. <laughs> Why not? It's kind of hard to sing when you're anxious. <laughs> you can't get enough air in. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> singing, on the other hand, is really good for anxiety. <laughs> is it? I reckon. Hmm. Personally. <laughs> you have yeah. to breathe to sing, so. Yeah. Maybe, right? Yeah, maybe it's a form of mind- mindfulness. Mm, yeah, yeah, to focus on your voice or something. I don't know. Form of joyfulness. <laughs> sure. Yes. <laughs> um, we probably should wrap up soon, but I thought maybe we should talk just a little bit about um community, especially like in in these times. Um, and uh, yeah, I guess like how yeah, how can millennial panic poems create? Or how do they create a sense of community? Um, yeah. <laughs> well, I guess they already have right now. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I talked to someone other than my cat today. <laughs> uh, I think people used to write a lot of anxious poems in their diaries and never show anyone. And now, um, I don't know, I feel like people are more open to share their anxieties whether that's through poetry or um, social media posts, which, you know, can be poetry as well. Um, I don't know. I think we're more open, which has made sort of this community of people who kind of go, ah, you sort of have these anxious tendencies as well, but we'll be okay. Or you're at like a poetry event or a launch or something. And you realize you're not the only person who sort of wants to fade into the walls rather than talk to anyone. Like, I feel like I can sort of, these days know that there are at least a couple of other people there that are feeling that way as well. And so it just sort of, it, it makes everything a bit um, easier and nicer. I don't know. I just, it's, it's more of a sharing economy of feelings. Yeah. I always, I mean, I, I don't, you have to say I've 
especially kind of go out to poetry readings and all of things like that. So, you know, I, I kind of like to sit at home with a, a book or whatever. So, but I think that like, you know, community and like the broader sense is like, you know, having like a pool of writers, like even if they're like your friends, contemporaries, people like dead or living, that whose books kind of are able to say something to you or like speak to some um, area of your life. Like that's, to me, that's like one of the most important kinds of community, even though like maybe I feel like the community I'm in, like, you know, it might have like some hundred year old dead guy in it or whatever, as well as like, <laughs> one of my best friends. But, you know, I think that's the, that's the goal of literature, right? Like you try and sort of share something unshareable and, and hope that it will, like, I don't know, speak to someone somewhere, somewhere in time. Yeah. And I guess the fact, you know, the fact that we're millennials means that we have this sort of digital world reaching capability now. Um, which is only getting better and better for the younger generations, but we were sort of the first to have the ability to share our work around the world sort of instantly. Um, and digital publishing has become, you know, huge online journals, uh, which we should all keep supporting, um, especially at the moment, um, has made it possible to, yeah, share our work in ways that build community so much easier than probably it would have been, you know, 10, 15 years before. Um, and I really love that. Like the idea that you can read someone's poetry and really love it and then start following them on Twitter and just hear about the random shit that happens in their day. is just <laughs> so great to me. I love it. And, you know, when they complain about their lives and they say, you know, this shit that's happening to them, you realize like the, the work of being a human that goes on behind being a poet, which I think I, I find really interesting. And yeah. I wish um, someone could have go back to the past and have like, you know, Frank O'Hara and John Ashford, but you know, just Chris yes. yes. Maybe one day. <laughs> I'm not used to talking to other people that was like, <laughs> um, yeah, no, I think they'd have a big audience these days, but, uh, yeah, at least the people around now, I, I guess the fact that the New York school are so popular at the moment, um, or just, I guess, have been and continue to be is like a celebration of that, um, aesthetic that I don't know when, like, I hope that will never die. The, the love of all those kind of, um, you know, like small human um, and real things that I really love. So, you know, we're carrying the torch, I guess. Limits are Nobody's carrying the torch. <laughs> no, no, no torch carrying. Stays right where it is. Yeah. But, yeah, continuing, like, we're... I guess poets just keep trying to keep humanity alive 
in words is that do we do that do we try to do that i don't know for sure yeah nice to remind ourselves of it when we're sitting at home you don't get to see humanity very often or just like a digital version of it that could be made up like remembering yeah. that it's real and it feels good and i guess like um for all the readers of of poetry um yeah like poetry can, can be a friend when you when you don't have somebody who understands exactly what you're going through even in um times that don't require self-isolation <laughs> um like yeah the the experience that you have while reading is something that helps you stay grounded in in who you are and your values and what you love about life so it's always a life-affirming thing i think regardless of what else is going on in the world mm. yeah for sure Cool. So maybe we should wrap it up there. <laughs> nice um, thank you so much, Claire Albrecht and Hera Lindsay Bird. It's been so nice to chat with you today. And um, thank you so much for sharing your poetry. And um, stay well. Nice to talk to you. Bye.